0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about literacy and leaders. And we have two incredible leaders here with us. Melissa, I know uh, we did our pre-call last week. So I've been very excited all weekend to talk with both of them.
1: How are you feeling? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're big fans of Unbound Ed. And we've had a few people from Unbound Ed on before, but super excited to have our friend Andrea from Baltimore, who we, we knew <laughs> uh, for a while. And then, uh, of course, Lacey Robinson, who just, I think she's kind of famous, right? I
0: think you are, yes. <laughs> I think, I think, I think Andrea is famous, too. I, yeah, I think they're I, both I'm famous well. is what I'm going to throw down out. So, <laughs> so Andrea and Lacey, welcome to the podcast. Would you, uh, Andrea, why don't you go first since uh, your name is first in the alphabet, and that's totally a (laughs) random thought. Uh, Would you introduce yourself and share a little bit about uh, what you do for Unbound Ed? Ed?
2: Yes, sure. Um, And it is first in the alphabet. Thank you for noticing. (laughs) Andrea Hancock. (laughs) I am currently the Deputy Chief of Program Design and Development at Unbound Ed. That just means I have the pleasure of leading the team that creates the materials that we use when we do external engagement. So all of the programmatic offerings our team designs and develops for. Um before I'm bound ed, I had an opportunity to serve as a school leader, a district level leader, supervising school leaders. And my favorite was a teacher. I was a first grade teacher before all of that started and loved first Mm -hmm. grade. So shout out to all of the first grade teachers out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) you. And good morning,
3: good morning, good morning. I'm Lacey Robinson. Um President and CEO of Unbound Ed. That just means I get the pleasure of supporting folks like Andrea and her other (laughs) colleagues in the organization um, in in leading what we call the way to uh, justice in the details of teaching and learning. Um, And like Andrea, before I got started here, I've been a building principal. Um, I've worked at the district level. But my all-time favorite is kindergarten and second grade. Uh, that was my all-time favorite <laughs> teaching. Uh, I got a little love for pre-K too. That's how I started my career. Oh, we have a
2: nice through line, Lace. From pre-K, I always stand those there. early years.
0: The <laughs> primary <laughs> grades are just coming in strong <laughs> with you strong. too. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, we're so grateful that you're both here to talk about leadership and literacy and what that means for everybody listening, especially our teachers who are in the classroom doing all the good work that that we just can't lift up enough. So I'm going to turn it over to Melissa to let her kind of frame and ask the first uh, question to you both.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, we had um, Alice and Brandon on in October and we talked then about you know, what do you do in the classroom for equity that's related to literacy instruction, <laughs> right? What, what do you, what can you do in the classroom? Um, and at that time we had, we had, we were actually talking to Andrea a little bit and she we said, well, what do, what do leaders do, right? What can, what can I do if I am at a, at a leadership level that's not just in the classroom, but what can I do at the leadership level to build equity through instruction for literacy? And so that's really the big overarching question and where we'll start today. Mm-hmm. So we're, what do you all what suggest for leaders as they're thinking about those two things, literacy and equity? Lacey, you want me to to kick us off? Sure. sure. Okay. Um,
2: So when I think about leaders who have the opportunity to support (laughs) teachers who are in the classroom, it is important that we model the way for what that literacy instruction looks like. Um, Kutz and Posner's, who wrote the five leadership challenges, has five principles. And of the principles, two of them, uh, modeling the way and inspiring to share visions are the ones that I would lean on. Uh, that looks like being in it with the teachers, not necessarily sitting on an edict and giving directives from top down, but learning mm-hmm. alongside the teachers and supporting the teachers in the implementation of what it takes to move our students forward. Uh, one of the practices that we used when I was a building leader was the cycles of professional learning. Um, targeted leadership was the organization that supported us with Dr. Jeff Nielsen. And it's also an article that's listed on EdTrust's site um, on how to implement the cycles of professional learning. And we focused on literacy. Um, I don't know. I can keep going about what that cycle looked like if you if you want, or I can pause right there and come back to it. Totally.
0: I would love to hear about it, but Lacey, were you going to say something?
3: <laughs> um yeah, I think I think the cycles are important. I think it's important for leaders to have an established way of being able to um, assess where the learning is going um, and determine what is needed in order to support the staff right around where the learning is going. But I was going to say that even before I think about building leadership. The ultimate leadership to me is the teacher that's standing in front of the kids, right? Mm -hmm. Like at the end of the day, whatever decisions that the system makes, whatever decisions that the principal is supporting from the system, the ultimate, uh, uh, I would say, um, flowing is through the classroom teacher. And here's the thing I think we don't always uh, empower teachers around that even if you don't have a career trajectory to become a building leader or to become a system leader, you are a leader in that classroom. And and there are moments as a teacher, many moments where you feel powerless. And the thing that I love about our work that we do is that we remind and ignite teachers of the power that they actually have. The power in the knowledge of the understanding of what teaching reading is and how to teach reading, the power of the content, the power of the pedagogy, the power of knowing and understanding the standards and their staircase of complexity. And so when I think of leadership, I want to ultimately go back to who is holding the ultimate power. And that's the teacher. Lace, that's where I, oh, I'm
2: sorry. No, no you okay, just got okay. me excited.
3: Cause that is exactly <laughs> the,
2: the reason why we chose to lean in on the um, cycles of professional learning mm-hmm. for that reason to distribute the power to where it should be within the teachers being able to set the parameter before we go in and do observation. So like the cycle, the way it's designed and it starts is we identify what area do we need to figure out as our focus. And so for us, we started with fluency. A lot of the teachers had kids that were reading and they were word calling, but not necessarily comprehending. And it was a general Mm. uh, generalization of, oh yeah, they're fluent. But did we really understand about the accuracy, the rate, the prosody that it took to understand what it meant for fluency? So we decided to focus on prosody because before that, I had no idea, what is prosody prosody done? I didn't know what that was. So we learned about the intonation expression and how that matters for being able to comprehend. And the way we did that was for through finding time for teachers to get articles that we vetted as a leadership team. And we said, hey, there's a, a cadre of articles we'd like to share. What does this look like for enactment within your classroom? We're going to provide safe practice. This was something at, at our school teachers had never heard of. What a safe practice. You mean you aren't going to come in and put a hammer down and say this isn't right. This is this is wrong. No, we're going to give time for you to learn and understand and grapple with your peer teachers and even support from coaches as requested before we come in and have some professional reading opportunities. We only did two articles, the model calls for up to four, but we did. We wanted to go deeper instead of um, across initially to start. So we leaned on. Mm two research-based practices and articles and allow teachers to then develop um scheduling we and this is where the leadership came in provided the schedule to say here's time for you to do some peer reflections melissa i think that was your kitty was that your kitty? Mm-hmm. hi mm-hmm. kitty yeah. <laughs> oh, the kitty was affirming me thank you kitty um, that's right <laughs> time the Andrea, so, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Some peer reflections where we, we use either the um, Japanese lesson study model or just an opportunity for to go in and see what does this look like? You've written out your lesson and what you think it should be and you've adapted it to meet the needs of your students. How does this look in other classroom with peers who are in it with you? And then we came back together to say, here's the data from this. And now... Like Lacey said, now that you've had the opportunity to lead through this teacher, we as administrators will come in to give you informal feedback on walkthroughs, to modify, to uh, affirm what's going right, to name where it isn't with explicit feedback on data to say, here it is, and we'll come back in two weeks to see where you are then. So it wasn't a great checkoff and let's move on to the next thing. It was a spiral or cycle, if you will, to unpack the fluency. Mm-hmm. And it definitely, so- it definitely helped.
0: It's very collaborative,
2: Andrea. Yes? Yes, very much so. The teachers, um, to Lacey's point, have buy-in along the way, and they have agency to say, actually, this isn't working for my students. Here's why, and let's see what we can do differently.
0: Mm. I imagine there's so much power in that, especially when teachers have high-quality materials, Mm. and, and because often I think teachers feel like, okay, I'm doing this, but it needs something, and it's hard for me in the moment to zoom out and see what that is and have that aerial view but with you as a really supportive administrator in that cycle with them I imagine that would be like an incredibly helpful resource to them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah
1: and I was thinking too with especially like you said with with instructional materials I think the unfortunately what what is seen a lot in leaders is you know we have these materials I'm going to come in and make sure you're doing it Mm -hmm. you know the way it the way it says it's supposed to be done, right? And like that—that's what I've I felt most as a teacher is like I'm just checking, checking, coming in to check off and make sure you're following the rules, right? And and a lot less of the way you just described it, Andrea, which feels that would be lovely. <laughs> so to feel like okay, we're in this together. We're going to find out what does work, what doesn't work for our students. What do we need to change and do and try something new and see if that works? And yeah. that that feels a, a lot different than that old accountability. Model. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I wanted to stretch a little bit what Andrea was saying because, first of all, Andrea is the leader that we want to cookie cutter, put in the oven, right. bake, <laughs> and make brown <bread laughs> <around> everyone, right? <laughs> right? Right? Like, well, and, and let me just say this, and I I can say this because I know Andrea. She's the leader, like many other leaders, that had an opportunity to stop, slow down, and be able to think about the mm-hmm. reporting of mm-hmm. that. But if but if we're gonna get real. Right. We're going to get real about what is actually happening, especially now in education. Right. Okay, so Andrea hit on something. The average teacher, when they go through teacher preparation program, is not given an opportunity to dig down deep into the underpinnings and the mechanics of teaching reading. OK, let's. Which, let's, is, let's,
1: crazy. which, which
3: is crazy. Is. <laughs> right, like, I mean, think about all the other professions. Would you allow a plumber to come into your house that has never seen the underside of <laughs> <house> it, Right. <laughs> Not at all. We we go in, we allow teachers to get certain, include myself. I'm putting myself out there. Mm-hmm. We allow mm-hmm. folks to get certified get into the teaching of reading and they have yet to understand how it works. So that's the teacher. So most your average leader, if they're lucky gets a pass through teaching before they lead, some, some not. And so if that's the standard form, by the time you're a leader, you haven't had the opportunity to study the the science of reading, the mechanics. You don't have that. And so that then begets, let's look a little bit higher, at the system leader. Most system leaders have not had an opportunity to understand the mechanics. You might have some that dove deep into it because they were reading specialists, that have a love for it. But at the end of the day, there are more often leaders who don't have that underpinning. So what ends up happening? They, they they go by the standard of education. And what I mean by that is what is actually happening now? Sometimes what is happening in education is ran by research and development. But if we're honest, sometimes it's the turn of the wheel. We all know what that turn of the wheel is. And at the end of the day, they choose curriculum. They choose material, really blindly, if we're being honest. And so what Andrea is calling out is for leaders to pause. And when I say leaders, I mean from the teacher all the way up through the system and to ask yourselves, number one, what in fact is this reading curriculum, are these materials philosophically sitting on? Mm -hmm. What in fact are they through their own systems, right? What, in fact, are they pushing to our children? And when you start to ask leaders those questions, that's where you can begin to get them to dig down and understand that you quite possibly, your system, your school system, could have adopted a reading curriculum, a reading program that will, that is yielding the abysmal results that you were getting. It's not the children. It, it's not even, I'm not even going to say that it's the teachers who don't have the greater understanding. It could be the philosophical beliefs that that reading program is pushing. So you got a reading proof program that's based on three cues, Okay, because my grandmother used to say, let's tell the truth and shame the devil. That, <laughs> that you've made a decision, okay, to adopt a reading program that is based off of, Oh, I hate this phrase, give it your best guess.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Best guess, the letter sound, best guess, the picture word recognition. And the best guessing falls back to, we're real now, the preparation that the child has had.
1: Mm -hmm. Well,
3: a lot of that preparation, unfortunately, probably did not happen in school. And so I'd like to start there, and getting leaders from the classroom all the way up to really dig down and ask themselves, what in fact does this believe in? And once they begin to recognize that, then they can begin to ask themselves an even harder question. OK, what is queuing? I don't I have so many leaders that are like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> wow. Sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. We have level readers. And I'm like, OK, so tell me what the purpose is of a level reader. The kids can choose their own books. Like there's not enough of us opening up. Uh, and this is what Andrea is talking about in this process, opening up avenues for us to really tell the truth about where our knowledge is and where it should be in service of the children that walk into our school buildings.
2: At least that's So yeah. I think. That's so evident if we look at what the research says, a third of fourth graders, one third at grade level. I was reading a study um, from the National Center of, I think it was Educational Statistics in 2019. And this was like pre-pandemic. So I don't even know what the numbers would be now. But it was almost the same for eighth and 12th graders. So to Lacey's point, we have the science of reading, which is 40 years of historical Science-based evidence, information on how to move reading forward, and for mm-hmm. some reason, a lot of the myths, like Lace said, the three queuing system, or let's just take the best guess, looking at the picture, or kids naturally learn to read, so give them a lot of text. Those type of mindsets still exist, and until we can break through, and that's a part of what we do here. At I'm bound to add through the the GLEAM um, process, which I think Lace will get into a little bit later, but helping to change the mindset around what it takes to actually do the work in a way we know is right for kids and especially our kids who are most marginalized most often.
3: Mm -hmm. And can I say something controversial? Okay. Hold on to your seats. I'm
1: ready. (laughs)
3: And where (laughs) in fact should the purpose of the three queuing system lie? Because here's the thing that I've been saying, like the war is over. There really was no war. Okay. (laughs) The problem is, is that because we're not armed with enough Knowledge about how you learn how to read, which is around the research and the development and the pedagogical moves that it takes. We don't always consider the both and. Okay, so I have a child who has who got started with those five elements of reading, and you know what? This is a literacy podcast, so if you don't know what the five elements are, I want you to make a note. <laughs> of yourself. And you'll find out because Miss Lacey's not going to tell you this morning. You're going to have to go research it yourself. I might say it a little later. So I have a child that started out with a, with, with a strong, with a program that had the strong five elements for reading, okay? Now, sure, are they in, as they're becoming fluent readers and they're moving up in the reading, is there a queuing system they may use? Well, absolutely. Because they have the foundation for Fluency. And it's not an either or. And I think that part of our um, the way that we're phases that we're in in education is that when we really begin to understand about the mechanics of reading, we understand what the place and purpose for all those pieces are. We understand that if we're honest, people have capitalized. On the ignorance that we've held about what it takes to read, and we boil it down to choosing either or instead of understanding around the both and. Mm-hmm. I know That's that was controversial. controversial. Some people no. may have up on the podcast, but it's, but it's
2: <laughs> <laughs> come back. Pick the line back up because I think you're you're spot on. Like we know that phonics should be systematic and explicit. Mm-hmm. But if you're in oral comprehension and you're doing a listening of a book walk, could you use a 3Qing system in a way that is actually beneficial for that moment? Yes. Is that the primary way to teach kids how to read? I don't want to curse on the podcast, but heck <laughs> no. Like, I totally agree. Right? But again, to your point, Lace, how do we skill up the dish from the district leaders all the way through to the teacher lens so that we have a vertical articulation of understanding of what it takes to get us the right level of information to then produce what our kids need for mm-hmm. the science of reading.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Andrea, David Lieben has already been on. So we've, we've totally had uh, some cursing happen. So don't worry about it. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to actually jump in. Um, I'm sitting here and I just have, I don't know if you can see I have Presley's um MCAP and on the state of Maryland, which I don't give much um, (laughs) weight to this, but I do want (laughs) for many reasons, but I did want to share that, uh, you know, 76% of third graders in Maryland approach expectations, which is that bar for the not like approach. And I will say my child included, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as a mom who is working full time and doing my best to give her supplemental what she needs. It's really hard. Um, But I will say I did kind of want to share that like, this is not something that you're just talking about that is happening like somewhere where we don't live. Right. Like, so I always think everybody thinks it's like, Oh, it's somewhere else. It's not my district. Mm -hmm. Like to the, to the parents listening to the teachers listening, like this may be your district, but to give an example, like, I talked with a fourth grade teacher. My daughter's in fourth grade. I talked with a fourth grade teacher over the weekend who wants to teach using science of reading in our current district, right? So to have the high quality materials, she sees that. But the um, the district leaders are steeped in the 3Qing system. We currently have... Um, Calkins and leveled reading happening. And the, uh, you know, one of the the teacher who I was speaking with even shared that the one of the district leaders wears like an I love Lucy shirt for Lucy Calkins. Um, And that to me was like the epitome of, okay, we have to think about how these systems are affecting the teachers who are in front of the students. And then they're being told they're doing things wrong. The students are doing things wrong. It's not fair, especially when the teacher has the knowledge. And like you said, Lacey, has the knowledge and the research. And she knows what the right thing is to do and cannot do it. And that is where I think empowering our teachers to stand up and say, this is not right. That's it's so angering, you know, and so frustrating on so many levels. Mm -hmm.
1: I also want to add to that, Lori, that I have a friend who's in a graduate program right now for reading specialist, and all of her instructors are leaders from the same district Lori's talking about. And so she is hearing all about balanced literacy in her (laughs) master's degree program. And she comes to me and is like, wait, I thought this was not (laughs) science of reading, like what's going on here? Um, And so, you know, it perpetuates that, right? The, The teachers that are learning from the the same people that hold these beliefs are, it just keeps trickling down.
3: Yeah. I call it the old iOS system. It's like your cell phone, right? It's like Apple saying, sending out a message saying, <laughs> we're going to go back to the beeper operating system for yourself. Cell- what? No, no. It's the old iOS. And here's the thing. This is, this is this is about to be really this is about to be a controversial podcast I'm gonna tell y'all right now so I'm, a, I'm gonna admit something. okay we're it. here for it never <laughs> admit it publicly um I actually worked for the reading and writing project. I put myself through graduate school working mm. with Lucy Carpenter project and I will tell you this. The thing that I want teachers to really hold on to and leaders to really hold on to is that just like a parent, you instinctually have an understanding of what is actually serving your children. You know that. And I could say that through that work, I met so many leaders and educators who were like, this is nice. okay." and I'm going to tell you I'm going to tell you why I think they like the iOS system. If we're going to be real. First of all, it explicitly tells you how to set up your classroom. Honey, I could arrange a reading and writer workshop classroom like no other. My room was beautiful. I could create a <laughs> level book room that would just make your head spin. I could color code. My kids knew their colors, their dots, the best guess. I could explain how you put a book on like a pair of pants. I knew it hands down. It, ta- it taught me as an educator the organization Right Mm -hmm. of a reading program, which the easy, the easy stuff, Lacey. The easy stuff. Right. Which, if we're being real, you never got in your teacher preparation, right? So finally somebody Mm -hmm. went for the menu, right? But they don't tell you what the ingredients is. They don't tell you if the chef decided to use gluten-free or gluten, you know, products. They just give it to you. And so the old iOS system is what leaders and teachers hold on to. And what I'm proposing is that we as a edu environment get together and tell the truth. Okay. You want to know how to reframe it with the science of reading? We can do that. We can do that. It goes back to what Andrea was saying around creating the avenues to get into the discussions, to read the articles, to come back and say, okay, so what about this reading workshop do I keep? What exactly do I stand up in my classroom and what exactly through the science of reading can I utilize within this workshop model to support my students? And so I think that what I really want educators to know and to understand is, one, if there are educators out there who are submersed themselves in that workshop and they know it's not working for their kids, tell the truth, tell the truth.
0: So, Lacey, if it's not working, what does that look like? Like, are teachers supplementing a lot of stuff? Like, can we call out what that? Sorry, I, like, started yelling. I got excited. I got excited. What does that look like? <laughs> oh,
1: my God. Tell us <laughs> what Okay.
3: It's okay. I'm going to tell you what it looks like. It looks like the educator that I spoke to last week who told me that she is, um, I'm not going to say where she is, but she is a bilingual teacher that is uh, supporting uh, students who are um, mostly from a Latinx background and um, that she is forced to use the Readers and Writers Workshop and where her students are best guessing their books. And she's also being told she's not allowed to speak Spanish. She shuts the door and she speaks both Spanish and English. She shuts the door and she prints off the explicit systematic cumulative phonics program that her and I talked about. She makes sure that her workshop centers are also supporting the materials that is used in that systematic, explicit, cumulative phonics program. And so am I saying she went rogue? Yes, she went rogue. Am I telling teachers to go rogue and like throw caution to the wind and don't worry about keeping their job? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this teacher grew her knowledge around the best practices to support multilingual children. And she has made decisions on how to balance those practices within the reading program that is being pushed in her system. And do you know what happened when she started getting the results and the principal said, what are you doing? She said, let me invite you in and show you. She didn't go in saying, wait, no, come see, come see what I'm doing. And I think it it takes a lot of audacity, which I'm. it's not easy to do. I'm not telling people that everybody has to do it, but it takes a, a lot of audacity to begin to build your background knowledge and to understand how you can incorporate it within that.
2: They should make me think, too, about um, what we know from ed reports. And so sometimes we have to let the data do the heavy lifting. Lace just named a way that the teacher allows the data to do that. But also, if you're in a graduate program that is pushing for something that we know is not, not even green lit, totally red lit. How can you share this information to help the people who are bringing it to you better understand so that they are equipped to know what it is that they're presenting. That to me is one way that, um, you can, you can do it in a way that is not necessarily easy, but question and advocate for what you know is right. So that it will help lead to a different result. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, and what we see often though is, Teachers, even with the best intent, when they realize what you said, Lori, like this isn't working, what they try to create are materials that still don't work because they break the coherence of even the program that they have that isn't working. And so how do we set teachers up to spend their time not necessarily replicating, creating materials, pulling uh, erroneously off of things like teacher pay teacher, but finding open education resource supplements like Lake said that teacher did to pull in that actually are what we require and what's needed for the change we
3: want to see. And Mm -hmm. and I have a question they could start with. I have a question, go to your teachers, your, your colleagues or even the leader in your building. And you say, what is the intention of this reading program? Starting with that question alone will spur up people pausing and asking and, and when you get the when you get the wh- the rundown of the materials, well, it has this. Has a, no, 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 no. What's the <sighs> intention behind the teaching of reading of this program? And teachers don't necessarily have to know that answer, but finding the answer to it as a collective group will begin to open mm-hmm. up avenues of discussion.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And it's making me think about if if that if. I was using high quality materials, like what would the quote optimal answer be, right? Or what would a really solid answer to that question be? And I'm just thinking in my head, um, one of the responses might be knowledge building. Uh, Another one might be systematic explicit phonics, Mm -hmm. right? Another one might be complex texts. So I'm just thinking of like throwing a couple answers out there so that we have some guideposts for those listening you know, what, what would be a great answer to that question? Those are a couple things. If you, you know, if you're on ed reports, um, all greens are not created equal as we talked about in a previous podcast, but (laughs) (laughs) green is a great start. And then digging in real deep to get down to the nitty gritty on ed reports is, is helpful. And, And of course our friends at Unbound Ed have incredible resources to help too. So.
2: Yeah. Lacey, uh, gave us as an organization a part of our vision for ensuring that we are able to encourage educators to actively work together to disrupt systems that are not beneficial for kids, especially those who are marginalized kids of color. Is through what we use at Unbound at called our uh, GLEAM process. And GLEAM, it just makes me twinkle when I say it. I always think about teeth whitening me for too. some reason. <laughs> but it's such great. a poppy acronym. <laughs> it is. It is. And it did It started off something totally differently. <laughs> you can share that too. But GLEAM is um, to your point, um, Lori. Is the the foundation is great level. We know great level is the underpinning, and that's what mm-hmm. what we see in greenlit. But it is not what we need for not just what we need for all kids how do we also make a curriculum engaging, affirming, and meaningful so the kids can see themselves in the curriculum, can learn how to advocate and have agency around what's happening within their local context. Their linguistic piece that Lace mentioned earlier is brought into the curriculum. So through our GLEAM uh, process, we help teachers change and leaders think through a mindset shift and what it means to enact grade level instruction in a way that's engaging, affirming, and meaningful and plan differently. So then we can see a different Uh, result in an instructional delivery, which changes the experience for the students and yields better results.
3: Yep. Yeah. And I think Lori, she was, I think when you went to answer the question, I was like, okay, she's going to make me say it. So comprehension, (laughs) right? Fluency, vocabulary. Phonics and phonemic awareness. Those should be
1: There's your parts, five.
3: Parts. five. What? <laughs> okay, that, that was your pop quiz. That was the answer. You wrote down the pop quiz. You got all five of those. You know, you got it right. Uh, but those should be the elements that you're looking for. And here's the other thing as you're thinking about those five elements I just named, as a teacher, as a leader, as a team of teachers, beginning to ask the question around what does each one of those elements describe? What's the purpose of it? How do I know uh, that a child is leaning into the comprehension of the grade level text? Right. Or or another way to check uh, is to think about the kind of conversations that you have mm-hmm. about how the child is doing in class. You all know this. You, As a mm-hmm. teacher, you know, the parent says, oh, they're struggling. Like, oh, well, you know what? She, she is so, oh, she is just the best, um, you know, classmate. She works with her classmates really well. She really comprehends the stories. I mean, when I ask a question, her hand is the first to go up. Okay, that's great. That That's one out of five, okay? But if in the parent-teacher conference, in the parent reporting, You don't talk about the success of the fluency rate with the child. You don't talk about the evidence that the child understands the phonics or has the phonemic awareness. You don't talk about how the child devours and then regurgitates the vocabulary. That's a problem. And so I think the other side of this conversation is looking at our parents as partners Mm-hmm. And queuing our parents up at the beginning of school of the look fors that they should be leaning on, particularly in the early grades, as their children are gaining, you know, their reading skills.
2: I, mean, Lace, I love that. We used to have parent meetings that we would, I don't want to say trick parents, but I, I mean for lack of a better word, we would have kids do talent shows. And then have a conversation with the parents about where the kids were performing at the end of the show. So we have them there. Let's get you in the door <laughs> so that we can get the parents there. And then how do we then um, do exactly what Leish just said? And even for the uh, upper grades, we know the five components for the science of reading, but written expression. What does it look like and where are your kids performing? Because it's all interrelated and ties together for a whole uh, literacy experience. So totally mm-hmm. agree.
1: Yeah, that's such a good point. I know. And I'm. Thinking back to my days as a teacher, and honestly, not having the most strategic conversations with parents because it mostly revolved around behavior, like they're wonderful, or like we're having some struggles here, mm-hmm. um, or just like are they turning in the work right? So are they? Do they have a good grade in class because they're getting their work done, or are they not <laughs> right? And it, and it often revolved much more around that than it did around the actual skills they need to be a good reader, mm-hmm. um, and. I'm just being honest and vulnerable myself. Of like that—that that was what most of the parent conferences focused on.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've apologized a lot to to my early students. I'm like, please forgive Miss yeah. Markle and her first <laughs> couple of years of teaching because I. And yes, you want parents to understand that they have helped develop good citizens for the school, but do you know sure. how many good citizens are in the world who are illiterate? You know, or or, or let's talk about. The good citizens, uh, where research tells us that despite what you put in front of them, they will become moderate readers. But do you know what a moderate reading rate gets you? That's tutoring, that's subsequent extra coursework in college. And if I'm really telling the truth and shaming the devil this morning, part of the reason why this is the world, according to Lace, we struggled so much over these past two years is that the word is easily passed and not read. Right. Like I can accept the word that is passed on social media about what it means to have a vaccine or vaccination or what a virus is and what's a pandemic. But how many folks boiled down and read the science articles, read, 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 even even if it was the newspaper and use critical reasoning. Part of the reason why I believe part of our struggle is that. A a nation of moderate readers relies on word that's passed and word that's not necessarily read. And I'm a a, listen. My culpability is in it as well. Uh, And I think that that as a nation, we have to stop and ask ourselves, is this what we're trying to evolve
0: to?
2: Mm, That's so profound. Melissa, and it, you know what It else? can be messy. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, no, Andrea. No, no. I was just thinking
0: yeah. it could be messy. <laughs>
2: it, no, it, it gets definitely. messy. It, it made me think, too, about the importance. When I was listening to Melissa, and I was thinking back to teaching the importance of the first teach. So often we rely on supplemental materials, and if we highlight, or if I was highlighting, I would highlight things that were related, even though now knowing some of those supplemental materials didn't even align to the same philosophy as the materials that I was teaching in the original and that we only do what we know. So how as a leader did I set up or not set up teachers to say, "Okay, this is why we're using these materials. These are how these materials align. And when you have those conferences, you set these as the parameters of what your conferences are about. We don't I'll say I didn't do that well enough then um, because I didn't know. And to Lacey's point, I hadn't read the information enough to understand. And so no more do better.
3: Yeah. 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 And also think about your reading pullout programs. How many conversations are there where leaders are asking, again, what's the intent behind the reading pullout materials versus the intent behind the classroom materials? You know, I recently had, uh, was involved in an advocacy parent-teacher conference about a, a young lady who does not have uh, the, the, the all five essential elements. She's about to go into third grade. I had to pull the emergency brake and tell her parents, like, stop all everything. This is an emergency. <laughs> and when I spoke to the staff at the school, it wasn't until I asked that question about the intent of the materials that I asked them to grapple with how both of those materials philosophically were working against each other. Right. And, and how even the materials that they had chosen for the pull out extra reading hour that this child was getting wasn't even fully immersed in the five elements. It just skimmed the surface of phonics and phonemic awareness. And and like until we had a deep conversation about that, it wasn't noticed. Now, the reading specialist knew it and the reading specialist had said, I w- I've tried to be an advocate in this system for us to reconsider. But all of the other teachers, including the first year classroom teacher was not aware of it. And so I think it's that level of conversations that has to happen.
1: Lacey, can you give an example there of like how the two programs were Mm -hmm. competing against each other?
3: Yes, and I try really hard not to name the programs. Yeah.
0: One Listen, was, we've already named them today. So, no, <laughs> <kidding>. <laughs> so,
3: so one was a, uh, a a leveled reader program that the first year teacher was using in the classroom with her 180 minutes, 108 minutes of readers workshop with the guided reading, you know, groups and the leveled books, and the other was a a, a program that was based out of, I'm sorry, I have it reversed. The classroom program was based out of the three queuing, okay? Which is why the first year teacher, when we asked about how the student was progressing, her comment was, if she would just slow down and take her best guess, if she would just slow down and think and take her best guess, where the pullout teacher was using a program that was... Based off a of level readers that had some sort of dibbling and dabbling in the five elements, but was missing a lot of substance materials and work around the phonemic awareness system and phonics, right? And so these two systems, right, the child was being doused in the 3Q regular, then she was being pulled out and it wasn't really getting at her fluency, And so Mm -hmm. and the other interesting thing is neither program had even matching themes. So I'm in my in my classroom learning about city life. Right. And then I get pulled out and I'm learning about bunnies like it just doesn't (laughs) which, you know, I think that alone should make people pause and think um, and yep. and I when I asked the reading special, she, she said, you know, Miss Robinson, I know what you're talking about. I've been asking the system to do this now since I've gotten in this system. And what I wanted to say in that conference, but I didn't want to say, is what I want you to do then is take the knowledge that you have and take it to that first year teacher. Because that first year yeah. teacher, by saying if she would just slow down and think, you all, who doesn't think when they're reading? and the kids who are struggling
0: think the most I know
3: there's impossible to turn your brain off to say don't think you know (laughs) and even with the slowing down and take your best guess who what
1: (laughs) yeah but I'm I'm thinking like how how painful is that in the long run of like I'm going to have to really slow down and think that hard through my whole life reading. <laughs> Imagine when and I'm getting to chapter opposite. books and, and and really tough books in high school, we have to <laughs> just sit and think and guess what these words are. <laughs> yeah. Which is the I opposite of what we want.
2: Yeah. But that we right. want the automaticity right. to come into play. And so them having to do that heavy lift keeps them from being able to comprehend. And That's that right. is the cross. That yep. Is yep.
0: The yes. Time. But now, now that child, child, child thinks. thinks. That that, that, that that slowing, slowing down, down is the is quote, like, the right way to read, to read right? Mm-hmm. Well, now I always that, think about yeah, that, like, that impact long term. Sorry, Lacey, oh go ahead. God. That's, ah, oh, my heart's yeah. so sad.
3: Yeah. And I was going to say, not only that, but the child had her words take all over her entire room on the ceiling, on the bedpost, on the bed frame, where there should have been pictures of princesses and unicorns and (laughs) mermaids. She had words taped everywhere because they had convinced her that if you would just memorize the words, you would become a better reader. But I don't, listen, I want to say this. I want to give this disclaimer. I'm not faulting. Here's what I want to say. I'm not faulting that first year teacher. I'm not faulting the teachers in that building. What I'm saying is as an edu space, we have got, to get better, about understanding the mechanics of reading. There, there's enough material out there, including OER material that you don't have to purchase, that you yourself can go and get smarter about. And we have got to in a we have got to get together as a community and put some pressure, oh boy, on our teacher <laughs> preparation programs. It, it's It's got to stop. we We have got to demand that teachers are getting an opportunity to dig down into the mechanics of reading as they are going along their either traditional or non-traditional teaching prep program.
2: Yep. Lisa, I would just add um, and just thinking about the teachers who are in that building with that reading specialist. How are they? How is the system, the principal or the, the coaches being set up for success so that the students will have the largest need are with the people who have the greatest expertise? Mm-hmm. Because often we see it as the opposite. The new teacher, the brand new teacher has the children who have the yeah. greatest challenges versus. What we will want was someone who has that knowledge to be able to instill it in the kids so we can catch them up as much as possible, as quickly as possible. Those Mm -hmm. are like the systems and structures that leaders need to know to put in place to ensure that the kids are being served in the right way.
3: And Melissa and Lori, you were queuing this up a few minutes ago. And I want to say this. It's not, we focus on the most students who've had the most disenfranchisement, right? And the data tells us that it is, our students of color and our students who are in uh, low SES communities. Okay, but here's the real fact: I talk to educators across social economic school systems. I talk to educators that are living in the most of uh, uh, I would say um, um, high SES uh, areas, and leaders tell me in those areas, these kids don't read. They look at the picture. They have words memorized. It is—it is actually a national crisis. And what I say is, if as a nation our students uh, are struggling as readers, our students have you know a reading cold, then our students of color have the reading flu, because we know about the compounded right disenfranchisement that they have been dealing with for generations and the beliefs that many of us implicitly, sometimes unfortunately, explicitly believe about our students. And so I think that it's important for people to understand that when we say the science of reading, when people say phonics, it's not just students of color, students of language acquisition Students in low uh, SES communities, we're talking about everybody, because if not, I'm really going to step on some toes. Why would you find parents having to pay to get their kids? That's
1: right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. And a lot of
3: a, <laughs> a lot of parents
2: <laughs> yeah. paying for additional and I, and I, tutoring services outside of schools. Those parents are the ones who can who have the social economic status as least. with. saying a lot of those. No, parents may be more apt to know how to advocate and and provide those resources for the kids. But all kids deserve that same opportunity, regardless of their socioeconomic status.
0: Mm-hmm. And I want to add to it has to be that right intervention, that right extra service. What I think sometimes we do is we think about the intervention or that extra service or that tutoring, and we don't address that main problem, right? So like the main issue is the tier one core curricula. And if we have that right, then the sliver, it becomes very small for those who may need extra services. And then the extra services also have to be research-based, right? Scientifically aligned. So when we think about it as a core issue versus like an intervention issue, like I just want to name that that's really important to think about. Like I know we're talking intervention right now and services, but we have to also get at the root of it. If those, if kids keep getting sick, right. And And we keep giving them prescriptions over time, that prescription is, we can't give them you know, penicillin every time it's going to stop working yep. and that's happening. So we have to get at the root of it and, and figure out what's happening at the root. What's the root cause change that and then go ahead. And we have less kids to work with who are, you know, in our struggling group because it, they're, they're truly outliers because the system is working for them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I hope that, that teachers and and district leaders and, and, school leaders take away from this conversation, this really powerful conversation today?
1: Absolutely. Well, we are almost out of time. Unfortunately, I think we could keep talking to you both for a very long time. But um, we just want to ask if there is one piece of advice that you'd like to leave for our audience. So to the leaders out there who include our teachers and school and system leaders, is there one last piece of advice that you would leave for them?
3: Well, Andrea mentioned it earlier, so I'm going to leave with, with the framework we've been leaning on. Um, and that's our GLEAM framework, because what we recognize is that um, even with the green-lit materials, right, there is an absence of understanding around the way those materials are supposed to work. And I want to name the culturally seed that those materials should hold. So we asked educators to consider our Glean framework, which means, is it grade level? Is it engaging? And we don't mean just rigorous and productive struggle. We mean, is it engaging for the students? Does it lean on their local, historical, contextual, linguistical, cultural heritage? So how are they being invited into those lessons? Is it affirming? Is it affirming for the child academically? So does it, what you're putting before them, Ask them to use the prerequisite skills they gained before they came in and ask them to understand not only what they're being taught, but how to think about what they're thinking about, about being taught. And is it affirming for who they are, who they are as their whole selves, who they are as their ethnic linguistic selves? And is it meaningful? Are we conveying to our students that what you're learning right now, sweetheart, becoming a better reader, getting fluent, you will eventually be able to take back and not only make your life better, your community better, your family better, but quite possibly this world a better place. And we sit on the shoulders of Gloria Ladson-Billings, who was the mother of all culturally relevant teaching, as we formulated our Gleam hypothesis. So that's what I leave for them. I don't... I don't know if you would agree with that, uh, Andrea, or have anything to add.
2: Only what your favorite phrase is and remembering that justice lies in the details of teaching and learning. Lacey Robinson coined that phrase for us and that justice comes in from what Dr. Maya Angelou says. You do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, you do better. So do better by your kids.
0: Love Thank it. you both. Yes. I know. I hope that any like down the road 10 years from now, two years from now, one year from now, I hope that no teachers have to apologize. Like that's, I think what we're all working for. We don't want to have to apologize to our students. We want to do right by them the first time. So thank you both for being here. Thank for thank you for your incredible advice and all of this really intentional conversation. Thank you. Thanks.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. Literacy lovers. Remember, we have a new episode out every Friday and we send a super helpful newsletter with follow-up content each Tuesday.
1: Be sure to visit our website to subscribe to our newsletter and podcast. It's literacypodcast.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at literacypodcast.
0: And please reach out with questions or ideas for podcast episodes. We love hearing from you. Melissa, what's our email address?
1: Melissa and Lori at literacypodcast.com.
0: We are so glad you're here to learn with us.